Chapter one, I looked at Tully and Tully looked back at me. The scullery floor of 9 Devon Street, Cottingham in East Yorkshire is covered in a bright, slightly garish, but super clean liner. It doesn't fit too well at the skating boards as none of the five and a half inhabitants are particularly practical or perfectionist. Cottingham was allegedly the biggest village in England in the 1950s and felt more removed from the city of Hull than it does today. Devon Street is a cul-de-sac off the main new village road, culminating in a parcel of spare land, all black shale, where the kids play. There is as yet no demand for car parking on it. The combination of terraced and semi-detached houses with small back gardens and even smaller front strips makes it relatively affluent compared to the pre-war slums of the city but it still feels working class. Number nine is a small semi midway down and I was born into its front room on the 1st of May, 1952. I know no other details of my entry into this world, such as the time of birth or weight, for my family saw no need for such indulgences in what was merely the arrival of another child, the occurrence being too regular in the Sewell family to be considered noteworthy. The low-level space in the scullery that Tully and I cohabit is small. This doesn't bother Tully. He's a Welsh corgi, the breed that the new Queen Elizabeth and her young family is making popular in England of the 1950s. He is the third, supposedly identical dog my dad has bought after an initial long odds win on a racehorse called Tully. This one's two predecessors being accidentally run over in short order in exactly the same spot by speeding cars on New Village Road at the top of our street. I'm sure I'm meant not to be aware of this tragic carelessness, but the small white flash upon the head of Tully 3 is a bit of a giveaway, together with my siblings' loose tongues. I do notice the changing corgis, this whilst unpacking and repacking my mum's pan cupboard, a task I was often given to try to amuse me. Unfortunately, it never maintains my attention for long. When I exhibit agitation through boredom and a lack of aptitude for physical tasks such as this, a state of ineptness that will last a lifetime, my mother is quick to wear and exaggerate her frustration. I hate dogs and I hate kids. She screams like a small, thin diva, but in a housewife's pinny. This would remind me of old Mother Riley, played by Arthur Lucan in the black and white comedy films on our first telly. And even later in my teens, when family life was more relaxed, we would irreverently nickname her Ethel with the E accentuated. We used to have great fun singing to the tune of the Donovan hit Mellow Yellow. I'm just mad about Ethel. Ethel's mad about me. I'm just mad about Ethel. Ethel's mad about me, they call a lethal ethel, quite rightly. But this is the mid-1950s and the family atmosphere is more tense. So mum has no scruples as she rants in the scullery that she likes neither canines nor children. I look at Tully and he looks back at me. We know she's referring directly to us, but don't let on. We are silent and the tension subsides. My lifelong love of dogs as the best companion one could ever have was forged on that scullery floor. Even though Tully was soon to use his lead to pull me down the stone steps from the back door and gash my head badly on the bottom one. 
there was general amazement that I hadn't fractured my young skull. I remember being sat on my dad's knee at the surgery, held in the big strong arms of his substantial frame. Dr. Plant stitched the wound while I was wide awake, but I felt only the security dad gave me, and I never thought of how my dog may have been culpable. The scar on my forehead is visible to this day. The trust in my dad to always make things right lasted his lifetime. Later, when reflecting on her moods, I realised that my mum's issues might have been brought on by the time of her life. That curious euphemism for the menopause. The absence of any practical home support from my father and the fact that she'd already brought up to teenage years my three siblings and wasn't expecting to start again with me over a decade later. Twins Ronnie and Audrey, then Joan, were born just before my dad was called up to fight the Japanese when they first invaded Singapore and then took other significant chunks of Asia in 1942. The conscription of a new husband and father taken away from his fruit and veg retail business in cold, austere, monochrome, but familiar hull, to the steamy, hot, disease-ridden jungles of Burma to confront the most fearsome of enemies, is something I still have trouble imagining, despite subsequently visiting Singapore and a simulated jungle battle experience on Sensota Island. Like so many of his generation, Dad never spoke of his real experiences, merely telling the dark joke of having three Japanese soldiers on his bayonet, with the last one asking the others to move up a bit to give him a bit more room. My Uncle Tom was captured as Singapore fell in the greatest defeat in British military history. He was a prisoner of war for three years, working on the Burma Railway. The Japanese had no respect for those who chose the dishonour of surrender, and hence treated their prisoners disgracefully, making torture an art form. All Tom's comrades died, and he came home weighing just five stone. Like Dad, he would tell no tales, not even a funny one for the kids. Dad returned home to Cottingham one summer's day in 1945. He proceeded down Devon Street to have his wife greet him and he had to ask which of all the kids playing out were his. He hadn't been part of my siblings' lives in those critical early years and mum had to cope on her own, a young woman with three infants and no husband in the middle of a world war it looked as if we might lose and hence be subjected to Nazi tyranny. Hitler was still a scary figure for me as a kid a decade later. Neighbours helped, particularly Mrs Bell, when the regular incendiaries fell on what Hollensian believed was the most bomb city in Great Britain, the family used to hide under the stairs. Mum particularly hated the bloody doodle bugs, as the Germans' new weapon was known, as its engine cut out to give notice that the bomb was on its way down to its victims. The fortitude and resilience of that generation was extraordinary and can teach us much today. My dad was one of 20 children born to an Irish Protestant mother, Edith, and their whole fruiterer husband, Robert. I cannot be certain about the details of any of my grandparents. There were distant shadowy figures who played next to no part in my life. I can therefore deal with them quite quickly. I cannot remember ever seeing Grandad Robert, as I believe he died in his 50s. From the old sepia photograph, he looked a pasty, sickly man whose alleged whisky consumptions and battle with his battle axe of a wife amused the kids, but probably killed him. 
Dad told us that he once peed on Grandmother from the top landing of the stairs as she berated him from the bottom for coming in late and worse for wear. The only other mention was of when he was counting the fruit stall takings at the kitchen table one winter's night and she started again, accusing him of being greedy like Fagin. To prove he wasn't, he cleared the table of all the paper money, threw it on the open fire and tottered contentedly off upstairs to bed. The kids, including my dad, evidently suffering varying degrees of burns as they tried to retrieve the bounty from the flames. Imagine mealtimes in that house, guarding your food diligently for fear of having it stolen from your plate, as dad would recall. God knows how many cousins and their descendants I have in the area, and who I wouldn't know if I passed them in the street. The only time I can remember meeting grandmother Edith Sewell was when my dad took me to her house on Goddard Avenue in West Hull, which he inhabited with her remaining brood, Henry and Brian. They were younger, needy wastrels rather than the industrious entrepreneurs that her first dozen or so offspring became. I remember she looked down at me and inquired of my father, which one of yours is this, Ronnie? This is my youngest, Paul, he replied. And that was it, my relationship with my grandmother done in five words. The one thing that this leaves me with is not regret, but a question over the shared Christian name of my dad and brother. Dad was always Ron, and my brother always Ronnie, but for some reason my grandmother had it the other way around. Maybe it was indicative of her lack of care and engagement. Later, when I was older, some of my cousins would on occasion drunkenly reflect that us souls are the best and try and create a delusional folklore around our over-large family. That is wrong, and they were in fact, by and large, a pretty feckless bunch. As a ten-year-old or so, I attended my sister Audrey's wedding to the older Beverly Shipbuilding draftsman Len Parks at St Mary's Church in Cottingham, the reception being held next door at the small and basic Arlington Hall. Sewell weddings were known to involve a scrap or two as entertainment during the proceedings, so as kids rushed to get a front row seat under the tables that ran down the side of the room and carried the buffet. One of my many uncles present tried to sneak some pims and lemonade under the tables to us, but my killjoy sister Joan spotted him, so it was game over. It didn't matter and we waited for them to consume enough rum and coke for it to kick off. It usually started with a remembered wrong or insult, and what are you looking at, with not a lot being the standard response. This time a drink was thrown, and soon half a dozen family members were outside pushing, shoving, and throwing ineffective round-arm punches, and ended up grappling themselves into a ball of boozy humanity and rolling into the churchyard opposite. This human ball of brawl rolled onto the grass in between the gravestones as we kids got another front row view from the other side of the hedge. We thought it was marvellous. Someone passing on Hallgate exclaimed that the police should be called, but wedding guests said there was no need as the boys were just having a bit of fun. Sure enough, the protagonists were soon walking back into the hall arm in arm, expressing more positive emotions such as, I've always liked you, as the edge for another drink overcame the motivation to brawl. My maternal grandparents were similarly but more benignly and boringly disengaged. 
Harold and Nancy Coupland were from a market gardening family in Cottingham and lived in a nice old house down Dunswell Road when I knew of them. They gave away their infant firstborn, my mother Evelyn, to my Aunt Gert and Uncle Ted and then wanted her back when she became economically active at 14 or so. Mum rebelled and resisted this cynical attempt at belated parenthood, telling us of how she listened to the arguments from her bedroom in the cottage on the market garden down Endike Lane, and then being brought downstairs to disclose who she wanted to bring her up from then on. She denied her parents, and plumped for her beloved Uncle Ted with his wooden leg and big heart, who she adored and named her youngest, me, Paul Edwin, in honour of him. I hated my middle name and used to deny it when I was young. It even embarrassed me at my wedding when the registrar asked, Do you Paul Edwin? to the great amusements of my mates present. At the end of my football career, of which more later, senior players used to refer to me affectionately as Paul Edwin, and by that stage I didn't care a bit. In fact, I liked being named after one of the few forebears who I perceived as being worthy of admiration. Grandmother Nancy, a blonde perm, upright stance and quality spectacles, did assist mum with the kids during the war and helped out occasionally later at my dad's shop on Beverly Road. Frail grandad Harold used to come to ceremoniously be provided with lunch by mum once a week, which he consumed in serene silence. Neither ever acknowledged grandson Paul, and this was reciprocated. As a grandparent myself now, observing how crucial most decent ones can be to 21st century child rearing, it saddens me that effectively I never benefited from the understanding and support of these most special of close relations. So the genesis of the Sewell Coupland offspring came circa 1937 in Hull Covered Market, when a 17-year-old Evelyn came across a 19-year-old Ron. She on the flower stall, he on the fruit stall of their respective family businesses. He from a family so big that they dragged each other up. She from parents who didn't want her, but an uncle who did. Both were immature and neither was emotionally developed enough to make any informed life choices. Like many of their ilk, they were too young and probably escaping from something rather than running towards each other. Yet within three years, they had three kids, their own fruit business, their own home in Cottingham and him destined to be off shortly to fight the Japanese in Burma. Everybody has a story and I do always like listening to them. They reveal how and why people are as they are and hence you can engage with them better. When people come to see me now, I often say, tell me a journey to being sat right here, starting with when you were born. Even though nowadays this sort of interest can be seen as unacceptable non-PC prying. In the more interesting stories, there are always dysfunctional elements, and understanding these is part of understanding the person. My life has been all about learning lessons and applying them. Hopefully I will highlight some of them in this book that may be useful. This earliest lesson for me was about people being much more important in life than things. We tend to cover things too much, much more than we do meaningful relationships. That's a pity. <laughs>